0: Tonight's going to be about the relationship between the uh, part of the mind called the, we might refer to as the interpreter, and another part, which is the emotional part, and how they can sometimes get into conflict with each other the role of the emotional brain is much, much more important than we normally suspect. Because the left hemisphere creates this interpreter, this inner narration of our life, and we rely on it to make sense of our experience. We have this story that we're telling about our day, about our life's journey, and about the way people treat us, stories going on. Without them, the flood of experience, all of the events of our lives, all of the sensations, the sheer volume of events would not make sense if we didn't have this inner story that sort of selects what we believe is important and cobbles it all together into a narrative. This is who I am, this is what I want to do, this is where I'm going, this inner chatter wants us to believe that it's creating all of our actions, it's behind, it's making the decisions, it's what's motivating everything. But, as the Buddha proposed in his chain of causation, actually thought arises very, very late, after most of our actions and impulses have already been activated or triggered by unconscious processes. The Buddha noted that well before we have any thought, we already have physical arousal and emotional cravings that occur beforehand. And that thought is an add-on. Gazaniga says about thought as the interpreter, it works on the fly, furiously reconstructing what we've done, creating reasons why we've acted, and inserting motives and intentions based on its limited, flawed information. In other words, we're very often acting on impulses. So we want to believe that our thoughts are controlling, but actually our thoughts are simply, most of the time, unless we really, really, really intervene (coughs) and pause, stop the flow of reactive impulses, Most of the time, we don't really have free will. We just have a lot of free narration going on. (laughs) Narrator, the interpreter, maintains our goals, has ideas about what it wants us to be like, knows our present circumstances in life, and wants to believe it controls all of our behavior. There are other parts of the mind that are very often active and the emotional mind, which I'm going to talk about a lot today, tonight, is very distinct. The emotional mind is timeless in the sense that events that can happen in childhood or 30, 40, 50 years ago can feel just as if they happened yesterday to the emotional mind. Until the emotional mind has processed and grieved or somehow figured out, uh, we've somehow uh, shown the emotional mind that we're in new circumstances where we're no longer in danger or threatened, the emotional mind will still live as if we are in the same conditions and the same situations as we were in much earlier in life. The emotional mind, in other words, projects the past onto the present. It doesn't let go of anything. It simply records all of the important emotional experiences which all boil down to abandonment by others or connection with others and maintains them until we process and show it that Uh, we're in a new set of circumstances, but until we do that work, the emotional mind will continue to act as if we are in the past as well as in the present. We see this unraveling, the interpreter, the narrator, and the emotional mind all the time. Have you ever sent somebody a text and waited anxiously for them to return the text, and became fixated, although intellectually you wanted to focus on something else and not care, and knew that it wouldn't be the end of the world if they didn't write you back, yet your emotional mind keeps pulling you back again and again and again, because their lack of response activates a feeling of rejection that mirrors in some way rejections from the past. Or people we know who go out in, on uh, into a relationship that's very short-lived, two or three weeks long, and then when the relationship uh, doesn't work out and they get rejected, they emotionally fall apart because obviously being rejected activates extremely painful wounds that haven't been mourned yet fully, abandonment by parents or by previous partners. We can be told and intellectually know that everything passes in life, that everything's impermanent, yet still (coughs) react to changes in a workplace or in a home life or in a relationship as if those changes will last forever. We can be told to stop and smell the roses endlessly because life is uh, precarious and we have no guarantees, and know that and yet still be shocked when a loved one dies and we realize the truth of that message. We can know we'll survive a conflictual conversation yet still stay up with insomnia all night long, Mm. worrying about it, visualizing how to perfectly present our case again and again reimagining how the interaction will go because emotionally we feel that the conversation reminds us of all those interactions in childhood where we weren't heard and people or parents or teachers or siblings or peers didn't take us into account and for some reason the conflict is activating that fear. We can give ourselves a budget and say, before we step into a car dealership, I don't know where I came up with this analogy, that we're not going to spend beyond this budget, and yet when the car salesperson comes up to us and says, don't you want to have this topic, don't you deserve this? We can find ourselves often spending more than we set aside, than we promised ourselves. Rational mind, logical, interpretive, narrative mind is constantly disappointed that it is not at the epicenter of all human experience (laughs) controlling everything. It's a little bit like people who followed the appearance that the earth was at the center of the universe, and then reacted angrily when Galileo and Copernicus came around and said, uh, not so fast. It turns out we're not at the epicenter of everything. We can feel that same kind of outrage and frustration when the emotional mind acts up and gets in our way. One of my favorite examples, uh, I'll. Try to talk about it a little bit more is, of course, procrastination. It's for me one of the purest examples of when we set a, a, an agenda, a goal for ourselves, visualize what we want to be, and then we can't, for some reason, complete a, a small step that will allow us to proceed in life. We get stuck and endlessly distracted. And we can assume the rational mind will simply create a story. There's something weak about me. I'm not strong enough, my willpower. And of course that conclusion is utterly, utterly incorrect. If we understand that the mind has many parts, one of it being emotional beliefs, another being this narrative narrative function, we can see that when procrastination happens, it's simply one part of the mind telling another part, I don't want to do this. You've scheduled a gig for me, uh, where I have to play in front of all these people, play my guitar, in front of all these people, and I invited all my friends, but you didn't check in and ask me, am I really ready to be that vulnerable in front of people. So, as a reward, I'm going to present you with a panic attack <laughs> right before the gig. Or well, right before you sit down to finish your resume, I'm going to distract you with Amazon and Facebook and uh, Twitter and Tinder and Grinder and all the other distractions. We can think that we're ready for a relationship and then have a part of our mind as we move into one that rebels and shuts down and can't and just stalls. We can believe that we've found the dream job and yet the night before, this one's happened to me about 22 years ago, 23 years ago. I got this job that I thought was actually the perfect thing and I had this night of complete insomnia because I hadn't checked with my emotional mind to ask and to to soothe its fears and to uh, listen to any overwhelming anxiety or um, concern it might have about moving into a new career. There are very often two ways we could break down behavior that has emotional mind impulses at war with the narrative intellectual goals um, that cause us a lot of suffering. (coughs) The first is the behaviors that look good to other people. Some psychologists call this our managers. One of them is perfectionism. Perfectionism might seem to other people they might like it, it might make us uh, what seems to be good workers or really diligent. But actually, procrastin- I'm Sorry, perfectionism is the underlying emotional fear that if we make any mistakes in life, people will abandon and reject us. And it leads directly to procrastination as well. People-pleasing is the fear that if we show our true emotional variety and difficult feelings to others, that they will... Again, reject us. Intellectualization is the tendency to overthink everything rather than simply feel our experience in the body. Self-sufficiency is the belief that asking for help makes us unlovable or will lead to, again, abandonment. So we refuse to ask for help. Recognition-seeking is the firm belief that we won't get seen by others unless we constantly demand attention. Avoidance coping is the residue of um, believing that all conflicts lead to deep emotional wounds, and so it's better to avoid any conflict. Probably the most common is passive aggressiveness, which is appearing to be compliant in face-to-face encounters while covertly punishing through pouting, complaining, rebellions, and non-performance. This is all my list. I'm sure people would disagree with my uh, my breakdown. And then we have the uglier, maladaptive coping strategies that nobody likes to see, and we bring out when uh, we're really threatened and the emotional mind feels really scared that a deeply repressed feeling that we don't want to feel will come up to the surface and be known. A feeling of loneliness and a a memory of being rejected or not loved. And so these maladaptive behaviors, for example, we'll see, and the Buddha called these anusayas, he had almost an identical list, are uh, intoxication, self-numbing through alcohol, drugs, binging, shopping, Netflix, acting out of rage, rather than expressing our disappointment, throwing a shoe or kicking a door. Panic and anxiety attacks as a way to get out of interactions or events that we're terrified of but can't admit the fact that we are. Withdrawal, which is coping via dissociation, numbness, denial, fantasy and depersonalization. If you still haven't recognized anything in you in any of this list, I give up. (laughs) I tried to be as exhaustive and as inclusive so that everybody would go, okay, I checked somewhere in there so that you could... But if you work through all of these, congratulations, you're the Buddha. Uh, So, the Buddha had a teaching called Yomiso Manasikara, One of my favorite tools, where he says when a normal person has an uncomfortable experience or behavior, uh, an uncomfortable experience, excuse me, their behavior is to crave an escape. Why? Because they don't understand that there's any other way to respond to the unwanted other than to resist, flee, try to get rid of. In other words, he's saying we all want to have an immunity to pain. We don't want to ever suffer. We don't want to ever experience losses or bad situations. So we develop these escapist tendencies. And all of the lists I just gave you fall into that category of trying to escape and find an immunity to pain, to not have to live life on life's terms, to not have to ever experience discomfort, to not have to feel our feelings. So he says, the way to work with this is to understand that all forms of resistance have, one, an allure, which he called a sada, two, a drawback, adinava, and three, an escape, misarana. So that's, again, an allure, a drawback, an escape. Every behavior we have has an allure, something we like about it, a drawback, and an escape. Now, if it's a behavior we don't like, if it's a symptom, if it's something about ourselves that we want to get rid of, it's the opposite. We can only see the drawbacks, but we can't see the allure. And we can't see the alternatives. So, for instance, with procrastination, we see the drawback. We don't get things done. We get stalled. Something gets in our way. We're distracted. We don't... It doesn't look good. But what's the allure of procrastination? Does anybody have an idea what the allure of pro- You don't have to confront your fear. That's, that's exactly right. That's... uh. One, and another is it keeps us from doing something that might remind us of a time when we were rejected in our past. So, if we don't, you know, uh, present our work, we keep on stalling, sending in our screenplay to a friend. It's because we're frightened that they might reject it or not like it. So, procrastination is an avoidance coping. So, exactly right. Uh, That's the allure, that's why we do it, because it actually makes us feel safer. If we start to ask ourselves, rather than viewing the parts of ourselves or the behaviors that we don't like in terms of what's wrong with me, how can I get rid of this, but instead first ask, okay, what is this doing for me? Why do I binge on food when I feel lonely? Well, because it makes me feel taken care of. It makes me feel like there's somebody there taking care of my needs. It makes me feel loved. That's the allure. Why do I uh, drink whenever I'm in a social situation that, where I feel um, I have to perform? Well, because it numbs the feelings of anxiety and self-criticism. Everything we do has a reason for it, just many of our behaviors we don't understand the reason for it. The Buddha is saying here that it's important to understand what is the benefit behind our symptoms before we simply view them as something we have to get rid of. If we don't understand the benefit, then we can't understand how to find something, another behavior, that will make the emotional mind feel safe. I'll give you an example. Suppose we're chronic catastrophizers and worriers. None of you would ever know what this is about. I am from a rich Jewish line of catastrophizers and worriers. My mom could always see the dark cloud in anything. Uh, But worrying, catastrophizing, is essentially a process that makes the emotional mind feel like we're prepared and safer. It makes us feel like we're not taking anything for granted. It makes us feel like we've looked for all the possible threats and the shoe that's about to drop. It makes us in some way feel prepared for life. So, the drawback of worrying is that it doesn't actually prepare us for anything. It makes us stiffer. It creates insomnia and mental obsession and it makes us stressed out. So what's the replacement? What's the escape for worry? Well, the escape is to remind the emotional mind that constantly in our lives we've been caught off guard by unforeseen events, and we've actually very often done okay. Now, we can't tell the emotional mind that, though, because the emotional mind doesn't have the language facilities that the intellectual narrative left hemisphere has. The right hemisphere has very, very, very generally most people very weak language skills. But what it does understand very well is images. Juxtapose two images together and the emotional mind gets it immediately. The emotional mind can be connected with using and holding two visual or one visual image just suggesting that we're safe. In my work, even not only with other people but even with myself, a lot of the times I'm simply helping their emotional mind understand that they're no longer children anymore, that they're not stuck in family systems where they're not heard or seen or understood, but that they're now safe and with people that care and or be, that unlike their family systems, if they are still with people who are unloving, they can actually change their friends. They can change who they hang out with. They can actually establish boundaries. They can actually leave difficult, abusive relationships. Until we inform the emotional mind that we are adults, we will still react with our maladaptive coping strategies which we're established in childhood to help us survive our families, but probably we don't need them anymore. But to tell and show the, emo- to help the emotional mind let go, we have to not only show it that these behaviors that it's relying on to feel safe are no longer working, we also have to provide alternatives, right? We have to provide another way for the emotional mind to feel safe. We can't just take something away. We have to give it, as the Buddha said, an alternative, an escape. So, I'm going to lead a meditation that will help us use a visualization that is actually quite contemporary to help us connect with the emotional mind. The meditation is going to use a rather contemporary idea. The Buddha actually very often used images and suggested uh, image-based recollections as part of the meditative process. There's a list of ten recollections that he recommended, some of them included reflecting on people that are generous and kind, sometimes reflecting on uh, devas, angelic beings, sometimes reflecting on uh, all of the uh, things we should be grateful for. So, in this meditation, I'm going to use an an image that will represent the emotional mind. It's going to be based on the current psychological idea of the inner child. So... uh, This is a mixture of traditional Buddhist practice and a little bit of therapy as well. So closing the eyes. And we'll start just by relaxing. Taking a nice long in-breath through the nose and lifting the shoulders up towards the ears and then holding and then breathing out through the mouth. Dropping the shoulders. Second breath, pulling in the abdomen really tight and then holding it and then releasing the breath through the mouth and softening the belly as much as you can. Everybody's eyes are closed or they're not looking at you, so big round <laughs> belly. And then the third breath, where we tighten all the muscles we'd like to the squinching the toes, making fists, facial muscles, buttocks, legs, arms, anything, shoulders again, just tight, and then relax. And then again, soften the belly into the space in front of you, knowing there's nothing obstructing. Softening the back muscles as if there's nothing behind you to defend against, which there isn't, and then softening the right arm and the left, knowing that there's a lot of space above our heads so that we can keep our heads nice, and uh, tilting them back so that we really prevent the head from slouching and don't feel constrained or limited. And just see if you can really land and arrive in this moment. Thinking of this moment as containing all of life in it. All the senses and feelings. And If you keep your mind really open and expansive, each moment can open up into a really enriching time where you can find more peace than you ever suspected it just means not allowing the mind to collapse around thought if a thought comes up just allow it to roam in there like a, a movie on Netflix that wants you to click on it. Don't just allow the thought to be there. But keep all the senses, the body, the breath, the sounds. If it helps, you can, amongst all these sensations, try simply to keep a slightly focused Awareness on the sensation of the breath and the body, knowing whether you're breathing in or out, or keep a slightly focused awareness on the sounds, or the feelings of contact with the chair and clothing. Or maybe just a little phrase we repeat if the mind is really busy. A phrase like, May I be happy, or may I feel safe, or may I feel loved. If a thought sneaks in and is so compelling that before you realize it, it's consumed your awareness and you've dropped away from awareness of present sensations or hearing sounds the breath and you drifted off into uh, another realm just Right now, like, put it aside and come back and no judgment, no criticism, no frustration. So at this point, see if you can let the sounds and sensations of this present time begin to just drift a little bit into the back of the mind stage and bring to the foreground of the stage of awareness an image of yourself. A slightly younger version or a much younger version of yourself, whichever you feel arises first. Try not to, in this practice, overthink anything or try to not to be even rational or logical. Just go with always what arises. So bring up an uh, image of yourself from a time where you felt either vulnerable or insecure or were dealing with quite a lot of challenges in your life. And just let the mind present whatever image of you it wants. Don't, again, ask why it's suggesting one image or one age But ask the emotional mind to be as detailed as possible. Can you see if you can see the hair color that you had or the hairstyle, the clothing you wore? Can you note whether you were standing or sitting? What expression is on your face? And if nothing comes up immediately, just keep on asking the emotional mind, the unconscious, to present an image of yourself. Don't judge whatever it presents. Just go with it. And if the images sometimes change, that's fine. When you have any image that you can feel is even slightly stable in your awareness, see if you can ask this part of yourself what it is frightened of you feeling. What is it most frightened of feeling? Is it frightened of feeling alone, criticized? Is it frightened of being controlled by other people? Is it frightened of being asked to do too much? Does it have too little guidance or security? What what is it frightened of? What does it not want you to feel anymore? Whatever it's, scared of feeling sadness, loneliness, grief, anger, see if you can empathize and not judge in any way what this part of you is scared of or doesn't want to feel. And now, once again, trusting our instincts, our intuition, without overthinking, bring to mind some behavior that you do that causes you frustration. And you might not immediately understand why this behavior comes to mind or its connection with what The younger version of yourself is frightened of feeling, but just bring to mind any behavior, any impulse, habit, binging on food, isolation, anger, fear, self-criticism, despair. Is there anything you'd like to address? and very simply ask the younger part of yourself, would it be willing to let this go, if you offered it something else that would make it feel safe? Now, the child or the younger version of yourself might respond, no, and that's OK. You might get angry at the idea to let go of anything. See if you can hold in mind, along with this child, an image or show this child some part of your life today that would make it feel safe, the fact that you have friends, the fact that you have people who care, that you're no longer stuck with cruel or difficult or people who are impossible to please. that even if you've experienced loss or abandonment, that that's not always the way life is and that there are people who have stuck by you and are still available. To show this wounded part of yourself that what it experienced doesn't always have to happen. And remember to show, don't tell. This part of our self doesn't understand words or ideas, but it does understand images. And now we're going to reach the final part of this exercise. I'd like you to imagine yourself with this younger version of you, standing by a large body of water and together you're going to place a representation of this behavior you'd like to let go of into the water. It could be a leaf where you've written down binging, addiction, avoidance, people-pleasing, It could be a small floating object, just something that represents a piece of paper where you've written the words. If you don't like placing it in a body of water, then imagine writing it on a piece of paper and lighting it with a match on fire. some image in your mind which represents the idea of letting go and then standing there side by side with this younger version of yourself your arm around its shoulder, perhaps its arm around your waist together and for the very last Part of this exercise, invite this younger version of yourself to play a new role in your life together, integrating your emotional needs into your life today. Would this child like to play with you or be creative? Would it like to go out into nature? Would it like to dance with you or would it like to... How would it like to play a part in your life today? And just assure it in some heartfelt image, visualizing yourself, acting in a way that honors this part of yourself which is often so repressed and abandoned. So very slowly letting go of any images you've developed and just allow the sounds of the room and the feeling of the breath and the body's sensations to return feeling whatever is present, even if it was a practice that didn't result in much. At this time, just feel whatever is happening. When you hear the sound of the bowl, just really take your time. When you open your eyes, take the entire length of the sound And don't look around at first, just keep the eyes settled at a fixed point, opening up the eyelids slowly and seeing if you can integrate sound, I mean sight, into all of the sensations.